From Northern Seminary, in partnership with Missio Alliance, this is Theology on Mission, the podcast exploring God and integrating faith and life. Here are your hosts, Jeff Holsclaw and David Fitch. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Theology on Mission. Uh, Dave's sitting this one out, but I'm glad to announce that we have Mandy Smith and Scott Jones visiting with us again. They should be familiar to you all. Mandy is the author of The Vulnerable Pastor, as well as a pastor at University Christian Church in Cincinnati. Hey, Mandy. Hi, it's good to be with you today. Awesome. And Scott is a pastor of Ascension Church in Philadelphia and the host of the excellent Mockingbird Ministries podcast called The Mockingcast. Thanks for joining us, Scott. You're very welcome. And if you have not read Mandy's book, The Vulnerable Pastor, I don't know what you're doing with your life. <laughs> I know you're not vulnerable. I know you're not. I know that's for sure. Not yet. So, Just read it and you will be. It, you will be. It's a that's great right. book. Turn off this podcast, open up your Amazon app on your phone, order it, and then get back to the podcast. It'll be, it'll be better for it. <laughs> yes, please come back. So I wanted, uh, I invited you guys to uh, talk about a very important um, center of the headline, top of the news kind of issue that is uh, before us, and that is the topic of joy. Actually, nobody's talking about joy, but I thought we would because we need to. Amen? Yes, so amen. To, to start, I thought I would kind of, you know, get to the essential here and ask the two of you, what brings you more joy, cake or pie? cake or pie either one of you want to start off there you know it's funny i just my wife lindy just explained to me what having your cake and eat it too means i was like (laughs) i've always wanted to i always wanted to eat my cake when as soon as i got it but i guess it's the wedding cake thing and so you want to save it and preserve it because it's beautiful and yet you want to eat so having your cake and eating it too like you want to have your cake oh, and it's aesthetic. I didn't know perfection, that either. But you also want to, yeah, I did not know. So that's, I don't, I, I probably, it depends on the cake or the pie, I guess. But <laughs> I mean, I like chocolate cake. Okay. So you're more I of a like, cake. I like pie though. I like pie. I mean, I like rhubarb pie. I like cherry pie. I, I don't know. They're both good things. I'm not a huge sweet tooth, but. The funny thing for me is when you say cake or pie, and then Scott starts talking about wedding cakes. The funny thing about that tradition of saving a layer of the wedding cake is that comes from the British tradition where they have a fruit cake. So fruit cake fruit cake is like the wedding cake. And that cake will actually last for a year. But you guys have a I don't know, pound what is that? Like a sponge cake. I don't know what you call that. A butter cake. A white cake. And no person that I know who has ever eaten that after a year is really feeling that great after <laughs> that. So Yeah, so you usually freeze it, right? People freeze it. Yeah. Well the fruit cake actually is kind of just soaked in brandy or something so it just it's like a brick it, it just lasts so when if you insert fruitcake i know this is going to like blow your minds but pie or cake didn't really appeal to me but now we're talking about fruitcake <laughs> it's totally that's that's my answer right there all right well yeah we could do it. I, i'm just glad that you know we took it to the wedding circles you know but uh, speaking of uh-huh. weddings like we have this long-standing uh kind of wound between my wife sid and i because she got this uh carrot cake 
uh, as part of our wedding cake. And then another part was this like chocolate coffee and it was amazing. And for whatever reason, I ended up getting slices of both and she got slices of neither and there was no cake to save. It was all gone. And so to this day, 17 years later, she's like, I never had a bite of that carrot cake. And that carrot cake was for me because Jeff, you don't like carrot cake. So I think I think I'm going to have to revisit that with her. But but the weddings, you know, this brings us back to uh, joy a little bit. Uh, the joy of weddings. Hopefully weddings are joyful. So the reason why I wanted to talk about this and I want to send it over to, to you a little bit, Mandy, was I was like praying uh, earlier this week. And, um, <clears throat> you know, when I'm praying, I always hear from Jesus like, you know, peace, 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 be at peace. And I was like, yeah, I know that you always say that to me. And then like, but then like the next word I wanted to hear was like justice. I was like, Lord, bring justice. And he totally, it was like to- something totally different. It was like, peace and joy. I was like, no, I want peace and justice. And he's like, no, peace and joy. So I was like, man, I got to spend more time on this joy thing. And Mandy, I know, I know you've been like really trying to find the joy in these things too. So I sent around uh, these passages uh, that I wanted us to talk about in, in, um, in Nehemiah 8, 10, he tells the people of God to be joyful and to celebrate. It's like a command, be joyful. And he says that the joy of the Lord is your strength. I kind of wanted us to kind of talk and unpack how is joy a source of strength? How does that work? Mm -hmm. Are you asking me? Sure. Okay. Well, the funny thing is I have a similar experience to you, Jeff, where I'm going into prayer with one agenda and I leave with a totally different agenda or perspective. And so for me, I'm going into into prayer just lamenting and saying to the Lord, why haven't you fixed this and how can this be happening in our world? And it's almost like I'm having a conversation with someone who's like, yes, taking me very seriously and at the same time is kind of smirking. <laughs> and um, and I get the feeling that he absolutely feels the pain of what is. And at the same time, it's almost like a child on Christmas Eve, like I can't wait for you to see what is happening, what, what I've got in store for you. And actually the wedding metaphor is kind of funny. I'm glad that we already started talking about that because it almost feels like when you're planning a wedding and there's always drama and a crisis every day as you're getting ready for the wedding, and yet you don't just stop planning the wedding. I mean, the joy of what is to come is what drives you on, and I think the Lord is, he already knows the wedding feast that he's preparing, and uh, so it doesn't make any sense. It has to be his joy that I'm sensing because I personally have, have, it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, it's based on my own understanding of what's happening I I don't have joy, but I'm I'm finding his kind of infectious, so I'm I'm trusting in that. Infectious joy. What do you think, Scott? How is joy a strength giving kind of thing? Well, I mean, I think joy is I, I think it's strength giving when there there's an emphasis on what his if if we're talking like at the core of spirituality, if if the word is do, then the there will be an inverse effect on joy. If the word is done, I think you can there there is kind of a, an ability to smell the proverbial roses a little bit, or or at least there you, there's less anxiety around the difference between is and ought that you feel all around you because. Like Mandy's saying, there is a hope that's assured, even though it's the flourishing finish is yet to be revealed. But you have there's this there's this um there's this piece that was on 
Mockingbird's website this week. It came out, I think, Wednesday. It's called Letter from a Hop- Hospice Chaplain in Las Vegas. And wow. the guy who wrote it, his name's Matthew Medivellis. And towards the end, I mean, there's some great things in it, but he said, he was talking about the problem of all of our lives being crowded out by political discourse and, and the sort of echo chambers that we all live in. And he said that, you know, that indeed preaching and hearing the gospel without entanglements in the law is the most political thing we can do. This is not because the gospel encourages to, us to be better people or because it, rely, it results in a better world, but because the gospel confers on us a real citizenship and a better world that is a done deal already. It is finished. In this world, we are freed from the burdens of being the righteous ones. We don't need to be woke. We're liberated from the need to be right. It's okay if we are not the ones who have the best plans for carrying out God's preferred future. That job has been taken. Future candidates without nails in their hands and crosses on their back just won't be considered. And then he says, free of our self-appointed righteousness under the law, politics can actually be about politics again. We are free of all the imaginary people that need our activism. Our neighbors stop being images and ideas so we can actually start to give them the things that they need. Our time, our cash, our labor, our prayers, our food, our drink, our compassion. Every so often our voice and at all times our ear. As an added bonus, some of us even get to enjoy my wife's off-key the very enthusiastic rendition of Bad Romance, which is <laughs> something that is, there's re- reference. Really. But I think that, and you could sub- substitute politics, you could substitute anything that's tyrannical, anxiety-provoking. And I, and, and I think that when the, our primary posture is reception of gift, it, there's a posture kind of of gratitude, and again, a, a less pressure to make things come out right, um, because Jesus, has, in his death and resurrection, has made it come out right. But I think when we're when when our posture is is motivated by do rather than done, I think that it kind of throws us back on our own capacity to shape what we perceive as the possible future in our little world and in the mm. greater corners of the world that, I love that are on our horizon. I love that. I was um I've been just living in Psalm forty six for the past couple of months and it's getting me through the whole be still and know that I am God stuff. And I ac- I was trying to listen to that this morning to prepare for this and I accidentally typed in one forty six instead of forty six and Holy Spirit accidents. Really <coughs> yeah. <laughs> it was very like providential. That. Listen to what it says. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. And then it says, God is the maker of heaven and earth. God upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. God sets prisoners free. God gives sight to the blind. God lifts up those who are bowed down. God loves the righteous. God watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. So, of course, we don't want to go to a place of passivity to say, well, okay, God's got it covered. We don't need to do anything. But if we begin, like you're saying, if if we have that posture of receptivity and trusting that he is at work in the world and it's our job to join him there, then it does it does give me more joy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Luther, in the, in, the, in the freedom of the Christian, he says, you know, the Christian is Lord of all and servant of all. And by that he means in Christ you're freed from these sort of tyrannical judgments and evaluations of the world, which also makes you really free to be servant to all. Because, you know, like Nietzsche says that you know, Christian charity generally wants to be rewarded. And so oftentimes, I think, without the peace and, and, and joy and sense of assuredness that you're talking about, Mandy, then... Oftentimes, our, our, our works of love are about 
our own anxiety and feeling rather than really being about the other person. It's, it's sort of like when we try to fix it, when someone comes in and they're really suffering and if somebody tries to like sort of fix the problem largely because the, the problem in front of them makes them anxious. So they can't just be with the person. So I think so much of our sort of like uh, sometimes the excesses of activist spirit or on all sides of the culture, I think come from a, like a, a, not from a, a, a sense of joyful and rest rested conviction, but sort of a, anxious provocation. Mm, absolutely. And I think the thing, as I've been trying to figure out, like, why on earth would God be feeling joyful right now? Does he, <laughs> hasn't he read the newspapers? <laughs> you know? um, and so maybe this is my own trying to make sense of that. But when I just look in my own life and around me, um, I'm watching how this is raising conversations at the moment about the nature of faith and how it engages with politics and how in the United States... Um, the church and and politics have been enmeshed and it's raising conversations about uh how we can engage with people of who are different from us um it's it's i think ask on a personal level making us ask like where is my hope anyway maybe i hoped in the outcome of the election more than i even realized and even if the circumstances don't change not that we shouldn't work towards justice for our fellow human beings but even if the things that we're working towards never change what if the desperate situation shows us how small we are and shows us how much we need the Lord? And I think that's honestly, I think that's his greatest joy is for us just to know we need him and to want him again. And um, if these moments of, of us being humbled and, and desperate uh, make us turn to him, then that makes sense to me that, um, that he, is, he is finding joy in that. And in my own life, it makes no sense, but in the last month, um, I have seen more real healing in human hearts for different people who I've been praying with, and in my own in my own heart, there have been things healed, like permanent healing, of the way we see ourselves or the way we see the world, and that makes no human sense. That at this moment, <laughs> you know, I, according to my normal way of dealing with wintertime in Cincinnati, um, I'm normally depressed by this point. And then in addition to that, we have all of the stuff that we're reading in the news at the moment. It makes no sense, no human sense whatsoever that I am <coughs> able to talk about joy right now. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, I feel the same way. I was coming out of uh, last year. I was like, I should I should uh, like read more newspapers and make sure I'm cr- up on current events. So that has not helped my uh, joy factor at, at all, right? And, and just last week we had, or uh, yeah, last week uh, we had Michael Ware on the podcast and he has written a book called reclaiming hope and for him there's a sense like well in all this political upheaval we have to be sure not to lose hope but i'm wondering uh maybe we need to be focusing on not losing our joy in the midst of this and then the hope will take care of itself if we can be sure to uh direct or to link ourselves to the presence of god and joy um maybe some of these other kind of neuroses will go away so for uh for me, one of the definitions of joy that I have, and I want to throw out to you guys uh, as we continue on, is, and I get this from, um, well, anyways, there's a couple different prayer practices and kind of some other actually neuroscience and things. But the, the definition of joy is being in the presence of someone who loves you. So true joy is produced, and this goes back to your gift and gratitude and things, Scott. True joy is produced when you're in the presence of someone who loves you no matter what. You're 
you're with somebody who's not demanding or asking or expecting some sort of law who's it's not something you have to do but you know that when you're with them they want to be with you and that produces this like reciprocal joy and that human beings are actually like formed and created to have those kind of joyful interactions so what do you think about that joy is being in the presence of someone who loves you hmm interesting i like it (laughs) yeah you like it scott i give it two thumbs up (laughs) i think the question is how do we let ourselves receive that you know whether it's a human relationship or our relationship with god it seems too good to be true that he really could love us and that we could have that kind of comfortable joyful experience of that relationship and so in my own experience and i think for many of us there's this like can i trust that if i let myself experience that can will i be disappointed um and i've i i have to overcome that all the time Mm -hmm. um so I don't know that that's one thing that I think it would take for us to be willing to step into that to say like, okay, well we have to kind of be all in and and set aside our self preservation in order to really receive the joy of that. Yeah, I I came across this. I came across this article, actually Sarah Condon sent it to me. Um, it's in the L.A. Times this week about a guy named Mohammed Bezek, who. Takes he's a foster parent in Los Angeles County. He will only take the sickest of the sick. He, so he's buried ten foster. He'll only take terminally ill foster children. He's buried ten, and it says now Bess expends long days and sleepless nights caring for a bedridden six-year-old foster girl with a rare brain defect. She's blind and deaf. She has daily seizures. Her arms and legs are paralyzed. Bezek, a quiet, devout Libyan-born Muslim who lives in Azusa, just wants her to know. She's not alone in this life. I know she can't hear, can't see, but I always talk to her, he said. I'm always holding her, playing with her, touching her. She has feelings. She has a soul. She's a human being. And I, I mean, I think that, I mean, there it, like, we, yeah, I mean, I think part of joy, I mean, we all want, it, it's like Martin Buber, right? Great Jewish philosopher. I mean, we all want to be at I, thou interactions, but so often, so much of the world is I, it, you know what I mean? You're treat, we, we, we treat people and are, we are treated like objects, not subjects. And so when there's really a moment where you have subject to subject and there's a real genuine, uh, you're really seen and heard, I think that's really what human beings want. And one of the reasons I think our culture is so toxic with like shame, like you know, the safe spaces and the shaming is that it's so censorious, the right, the middle, the left, the religious, the irreligious, that like it's almost impossible sometimes to feel heard because you are so conscious of the fact that any moment your self-expression could, it, it, you know, could, could meet this sort of censorious judgment. And so we all posture and, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to be an object, I don't want to be shamed. And so the, it, I think that really is 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 a block to real human intimacy mm-hmm. which is what we're wired for <laughs> right right yeah we're wired for human intimacy and when we have it i think joy becomes spontaneous you don't have to work for it when we don't have it the joy is just impossible to uh receive that's why for me i always like tilt toward presence and things like that like do we believe god wants to be with us for me this is one of the fundamental things do we really believe god wants to be with us and i kind of Recently, I've changed that. Instead of saying God loves you to people, I say God wants to be with you. Because I think like the God loves you language is just like, bleh. 
But to say, you know, like God has an interest in being with you and he's working hard to make that possible. Are you open to that? Um, and so it gets, so maybe that was a transition, I guess, to my next uh, kind of point, which was, or passage, which is from Hebrews 12, 2, which says, who, speaking of Jesus, for the joy set before him endured the cross. And I think for many of us uh, for whom uh, joy is usually just equated with happiness, that verse makes no sense. Why is it a joyful thing that Jesus endured the cross? Um, and so do you guys find that oftentimes joy and happiness are kind of equated, that that's just kind of like the, the default setting in people? When you speak about joy, they're just thinking you want me to be happier? Oh, yeah. But obviously that's not what we're talking about. I think there is an element of good feeling at times in what we would say is that more kind of spiritual joy. Certainly. Um, but at the same time, it's not necessary all the time. Mm-hmm. I kind of see... I, uh, oh, go ahead. No, go on. Uh, when I was uh, this great philosophical movie known as uh, Inside Out, the cartoon... Uh, oh, it's a very deep oh, movie. Oh, it's, it's the best it. movie. But uh, I, And I talked about this with my kids, and I actually used it as a sermon illustration, is that the movie, and I don't know if the, the writers actually thought of it this way, but the true transformation in that movie is actually in the character of Joy. Uh, because... I see her as actually functioning as mere happiness for the first part of the movie. She doesn't actually know who she is. She, she has to push sadness away because she thinks she thinks her job is to be happy and to make sure that everybody's happy. And only later does she accept the true joy of family connections is connected with the sorrow or the sadness when that connection is lacking and that they need to work together. Um, Right. And so, and yeah, the two are interconnected. Right. I uh, I came across a quote from C.S. Lewis that says that joy must have the stab, the pang, the unconsolable longing. And um, that kind of somehow makes me feel better that I don't have to feel super happy all the time and that there is a way. I think um, this passage, the joy set before him, endured the cross, kind of connects the joy. The joy is what is coming. The longing is because it hasn't come yet. <laughs> And so it helps me to have permission to be honest uh, in that movie. Like it wasn't really based on truth when she's just like pretending everything's great all the time. And we have to trust that truth is big enough that we, if we step into the lamenting that it won't just go down a dark pit. If God doesn't exist, if there is no hope in the world to step into lament is to just spiral downwards and to never return. And yet lament Every every psalm of lament begins with that and turns into praise, and that is my experience of lament. Not not that it necessarily happens in that moment on that day, but um, the more that I step into the lament, the more it brings me back out to a new place. But it's scary to go there. And, and I think the psalms. I yeah, I totally agree. I think the psalms are written, and as they and I you know I, all of you are artists and you know poets and writers and things it's in the you know I think in the the process of writing those psalms people say oh I'm still connected with God God is still here with me even in the midst of this thing and that it's not that the circumstances or the pain has changed but the presence of God is now there mm. and it's it's that change and so the joy set before him Well that's him, interesting Yeah and if you define joy as um being with someone how was it being with someone who you love who wants who to be with you, you? Being with someone who, who wants, wants to be with, with you. you. So if the experience of lament is me just like beating on God's chest and trusting he's not going to go anywhere, then that is being together and that is me trusting he can 
he will be there for me even when I'm not feeling great. And so how is that not joy, according to your definition? Well, it, it, or it comes to joy at some point. And joy yeah. doesn't always have to be. This is where, you know, I know people, some people listening are probably coming out of church context where it was just like the forced happiness. Everyone on the stage was like exuding, you know, joy or whatever, joy in quotes maybe, and happiness. And so when you hear talks of joy, it's just like, oh, I hate Christians who can't be sad uh, and things like that, which I, I definitely think, you know, we need to be aware of that. But then how can we move back into the authentic kind of mm. joy, which takes the cross seriously, yeah, which yeah, can cry with the world? There's this great line that I, I mean, it's one of the best things I've read in the past decade or so. Like, it's in Frank Lake's Clinical Theology, which is kind of an intersection of psychiatry and theology. In the intro, he says, the natural man in us tends to reject the paradox that mental pain and spiritual joy can exist together in us without diminishing either the agony of the one or the glory of the other. The whole personality may be afflicted by a sense of weakness, emptiness, and pointlessness without diminishing in the least our spiritual power and effectiveness. This is possible because Christ is alive to reenact the mystery of his suffering and glory in us. So far as our own subjective feelings are concerned, any interdirected questioning of our basic human state may produce the same dismal answer as before. The cupboard is bare. While we regard our humanity as a container, which ought to have something good in it, when we look inside, we miss the whole point of the paradox. We are not meant to be self-contained, but channels of the life and energy of God himself. From this point of view, our wisdom is to let the bottom be knocked out of our humanity, which will ruin it as a container. At the same time, it turns into a satisfactory channel. Wow. Wow. Which brings to mind for me the image, Paul's image of, you know, that we are clay vessels. And again, the thought of being fragile and empty is not what we would prefer. We would want to be filled. But if if the emptiness gives more room for the unfading treasure of the very spirit of the living God to fill us, then that's where I, I'm finding my joy is coming. Is you know, It's crazy to imagine, and I'm not from a movement that talks that much about it, but we have been promised that the same spirit which spoke the universe into being inhabits our very bodies and it has joy that spirit in us has joy and um i've i've my physical human self doesn't understand it and is kind of embarrassed by it by this childlike thing happening inside of me that is not me and so to actually I've made a choice to speak from that even though I feel stupid and naive and and I know I'm sounding like all those people you talked about that we have baggage about who are putting on a silly grin um, and it's not it's not real but I'm j- I'm very comfortable speaking about my my grief and my doubt and yet when there's joy why do I censor that <laughs> you know why do I sabotage that and so it was beautiful this week, actually, because I had made a decision to speak from that, even though I feel so foolish. And someone just in passing kind of said, so how are you today? And I said, well, I don't really want to say this, but I have this like joy that makes no sense today. And I got up, we we're sitting down to have a conversation. I got up to get a drink of water. And by the time I came back, the girl who I had said that to was in tears. And she said, that sparked joy in me that also makes no sense, you know. And so I could have not 
spoken from that and not trusted that that same spirit was in her that also wanted to say, yes, amen, you know. So uh, it's almost an obedience to, to speak from that when we feel it or I don't know if it's a feeling, but, you know, when we sense that joy, there is a way in which we have to be obedient. And if we need to acknowledge all of the baggage and that's great, that's fine. But um, how can speaking it, speak it into being in in the community, you know? Hmm. Hmm. That's great. What about you, Scott? How has this worked its way out in your church circles or friendships or relationships? Joy. Yeah, I, it's a, it's very interesting. I mean, I'm uh, I'm a four in the enneagram, so everything is pro- is overly subjective and sometimes uh, extreme. It's fu- really funny. I heard somebody say there was four in the enneagram, said that he he's never met a feeling he had that he didn't want to change. Like if he's happy, he wanted to be happy. If he's sad, he wanted to be sadder. If he was, you know, like <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, I think um, in general, uh, I. I I I think that I'm pretty present to the reality of my own emotions. And yeah, I, I also try to kind of ground the subjective in what is like, like what Manny's saying was objectively true about the God who draws near to us in Christ and the spirit. And so like, I try to sort of, uh, sometimes I think it's, it's, it's about hearing the gospel preached to yourself um, in the midst of whatever the, yeah, when the cupboard feels bare, <laughs> you know, like that, that's not necessarily the, the, it, sometimes that's actually the seed bed of joy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'd be curious. You said something there that just prompted it, but now I forget what, what you said, <laughs> but something about choosing it or practicing it. Um, and I think I'm curious to hear from you guys. I don't know, I always despair a little bit when people are like, yes, joy is the point. You should have more joy. Think more about joy. You know, so for me, it it's always a choice of pr- practices which help me choose the posture even though I don't feel it and somehow it becomes more natural over time. So are there ways that you guys are making decisions to pursue that um, that, that are beyond just thinking more about it? Well, you're definitely asking the wrong person in me because I, uh, I'm kind of reflexively joyful, so I don't have to try. Like I have this weird, uh, personal kind of just. Uh, well, you, if you meet me in person, I'm like a pretty joyful. But in like my pastoring, and I have this like very prophetic kind of like challenging side to me, which is like sometimes at odds. Um, but I think for uh, for me. The choosing or trying to develop joy, I used to hate that. Like, oh my gosh, you can't tell people to, you know, because it's when joy is connected to an emotion, then it's like you can't tell people to have emotions. That's just like abusive almost. But if joy is connected to presence or someone's presence, particularly, hopefully, God's presence, and can't we return to joy and say, no, in the midst of this, in the midst of my sin or in the midst of the brokenness of the world, I can now return and remember that God wants to be with me. He has made provisions to make sure that happens in Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. And so therefore I can in some ways circle back, not in denial of my circumstances or what I've done or what's been done to me, but I can circle back and say, no, but there is a place of joy, of acceptance, of of love that um, 
I can, you know, meditate on or contemplate on. Um, not, not in a denial. I, so I think like the bad joy or the bad happiness is usually a denial of something, but good joy should be an affirmation. It's like, no, even in the midst of this, God is here. Even in the midst of this, God, uh, wants me to be with him. Even in the midst of this, God does love me. Um, and so that, those are the kind of mm. things that I'm trying to think through and live into. Yeah. And I just wanted to hear from you too, Scott, but I'm interested that you said like you have this prophetic thing that challenges, but I, I've just been living in Walter Brueggemann's prophetic imagination. And he says that is the prophetic posture to be both lamenting and dancing, to be calling out what is not right and to be speaking in crazy ways about the joy. And um, in some ways it's easier for us to critique what all is wrong in the world and lament it than it is to say, and also, uh, what if God was making all things new? What if the pain was not death pain, but labor pain? That feels harder to say oftentimes than just everything is, is going to hell in a handbasket. But I wanted to hear your answer to the question too, Scott. Yeah, I, I'm sympathetic to what you said about people saying we just like, get more joy or be more joyful. Because I think, I, in general, I just think real fruit like that is received. I mean, you know, there's no passage in the New Testament that talks about building the kingdom. It's always something that's received or inherited. So, so when people say we're going to do kingdom work, I'm like, well, that just fundamentally seems in antithesis to the, uh, uh, the main thrust of the New Testament. That these, so, so I think that this is the problem with the kind of like, okay, you be more joyful in the sense of that, like it puts you in, in a posture of a certain kind of activity when really I think joy is often found in receptivity. It, yeah. So like, I, I, it, I don't know. I don't, I, I think I probably, on my good days, I, which are few, I, I, I think I'm probably <laughs> not thinking about cultivating joyful practices mm, or whatever. That's beautiful. I, I hope, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I think we have to be willing to do our part, but also know that there's only so much that we can do and the rest of it is the Lord's work. And for me, I think that means just stepping out of what feels so important. And, um, you know, we we can say keeping up with the news, doing our work. There are some things that as adults we just think, yes, these are the things that are important, significant, productive things. And uh, most of the moments of real joy, I have, I have had to wrestle with giving myself permission to even step into them. I had a, a moment recently, I often... I live on a hilltop and I often go to the to the edge of the hill and look out over the city and pray every morning. And I was feeling really kind of shaky recently and there was a tree right beside me. So I was like, I'm going to just go and put my arm around this tree because uh, it just is, re this is a reassuring presence in a tree. Not quite as much as with a human, but it's better than like a concrete pole. Like there is life in a tree. And so I just kind of sidled up to the tree and just looked out over the city and put my arm around it. And as I looked at it, um, there was like this miniature world happening in the bark of the tree where there were these mushrooms that were literally about the size of the a head of a pin, like this whole little city of mushrooms that each one was only so tiny. And then there was this little inchworm, which wasn't even an inch. It was like a, a fourth of an inch scooting through all these mini, mini mushrooms. And I was, it just took my breath away. I was like, oh my goodness, this whole time I am seeing all these big things and worrying about all these big things. This little inchworm has absolutely no idea about any of that. He's just getting on with his life. And this, this, 
you know, that did not fix the stuff that I was lamenting and the ways I was brokenhearted. But at the same time, that is just as much a reality as the things that seem so important to me. And so <clears throat> being around, being in nature, like telling myself to be in nature, even though it doesn't feel important or productive and it feels like, well, this isn't going to fix all the problems of the world. Forcing myself to look at the trees, to look at the birds. I mean, the sky over our heads changes by every second. It's a miracle that there's this thing that's constant. It's never the same. Um, and to be around children who, again, I just look at a two-year-old and I think he has no idea about all the things that weigh me down. Um, to step into a creative space, whether it's art or music, again, um, it doesn't fix all the big things, but at the same time, it reminds us, it puts them in better perspective. It reminds us there are other things also happening. And it also, once we've had that little feeling of, of something beautiful and transcendent, it, we come back into the hard things. Um, it just restores our soul, you know, it gives us energy and, and something to keep us going because if we're constantly engaged in fixing everything in the world then we're just going to burn ourselves out uh, right yeah it's interesting what you said too like I, I think that's absolutely right like once we're already saying like at the point where like you're okay like, hey, well this isn't going to solve all the problems of the world well i think once we think that life is about solving all the problems of the world the game's kind of lost there mm, yeah. <laughs> you know like like when we frame things well, that's the human vocation to solve all the problems in the world then I think we're always caught in that mm -hmm. dilemma of like, but if, you know, if, if that's not uh, the vocation of, of a human being, you know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. there's a great line from Irenaeus, um, uh, the, uh, the glory of God is man fully alive. Mm -hmm. And I just thought of mm -hmm. that at the Super Bowl. I thought, Lady Gaga, this woman looks fully alive mm -hmm. here. I loved your piece on that, by the way. Uh, I mean, I was so blown away by that halftime show. But I mean, I, so I think, you know, that, I starting off with the framework that maybe the problems of the world aren't at the uh, fix at least solving all the problems of the world aren't at the center of being alive mm -hmm. uh, f f opens up space to be receptive to some different things. I love it. Mm. It brings me that back to the passage you read, Jeff, about um, for the joy set before him. I mean, when you think about it, the father knew if he could see ahead. He knew all of the war, all of the pain, all of the people who would turn from him, all of the crisis of this crazy world throughout all of history before he even created it. Mm. And yet, for some reason, he chose to make it anyway, <laughs> you know? And so I can, it makes no sense. And so I can only imagine that he knew that uh, and the sum of it all would be joy and hope, mm. that mm -hmm. something would outweigh, that his, his desire to just be with us uh, somehow made it all worth it, and that somehow helps me set aside my needing to fix it all when I remember that. I don't always remember that, <laughs> but when I do, it gives me a different perspective. And it just makes, yeah, and it makes the joy so immense there that this is from God's perspective. It's his joy that he sees that he then endures. Um, I just, just to wrap it up, I, you know, I think like these things are difficult and we always need to keep revisiting them but then when i read the new testament i'm always struck by the letters paul writes and and he's always talking about joy and rejoicing and not telling people but it just seems like his communities are full of joy and i always wonder at least my communities the ones i know of in north america it's like are we ref are we living in that joy what are we missing about this thing called the gospel or salvation or whatever you want to call it 
are we do we have the whole thing or do we need something more because i don't see the joy uh around us and it's just so complicated when it just seems not to be the case for paul and his and his emissions and things like that so um thank you so much for being those who are willing to press into joy and hope for joy um and let us try to spread the joy. This is kind of like, a, I'm thinking this is like a, a Valentine's re- Day replacement. So instead of talking about lo- love, we're talking about joy. And I think that's appropriate. We could talk about love so often that it becomes lost. But can we cling to joy in some fashion? Any concluding thoughts you guys have there? It's all good. Oh, that's good. I'm for both love and joy. I like love yeah, and joy. Yeah, I think they're hard to distinguish. Yes. Well, they're the first two fruits of the Spirit, love and joy. There you go. And then they lead to peace. Well, aren't they? I have somebody in my life who likes to correct me every time I say fruits of the Spirit and remind me that it's It is fruit. Oh, it is singular. Right. Yeah, it is singular. And so just to bring that all together, that those things all are growing in us all together, that the, that the Spirit, that he can't tell the difference between all those fruit either. Mm. Concomitantly, Amen. Mm. Oh my goodness. which is, to my knowledge, a word Jonathan Edwards invented. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mandy. Thank you so much, Scott, for being on the show with us. And thank you. I want to be sure to have you guys on again. This has been great. Yes, absolutely. Good to, have, good to be here. All right. Well, signing off. This is theology admission. We'll talk to you next time.